This is Gil Manser, your host for Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. Today I'm talking with Gene Hagland, author of Into the Forest, the best-selling novel of a near future, and the soon-to-be-released Still Time, a novel about a Shakespearean scholar with Alzheimer's. We will chat about both books on today's show. Long-time listeners may recall that Gene joined novelist Greg Sarrest on my very first Word by Word broadcast way back in May 2007. A lot has happened in the intervening years, including actress Ellen Page falling in love with Into the Forest and guiding the book's transformation to a film as its producer. The Canadian-made movie stars Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood and is directed and written by Patricia Rosima, who created two of my favorite films, 1987's I've Heard the Mermaid Singing and 2008's Kit Kittredge, An American Girl. I am pleased to announce that the movie version of Into the Forest will open at Sebastopol's Rialto Cinemas next Friday, September 16th. Jean was born and raised eight miles from the Washington-Idaho border. Her mother taught high school English and was the school librarian, and her father was a professor of English at Washington State. Jean has a B.A. from Washington State and an M.A. in Rhetoric and the Teaching of Composition from Eastern Washington University. In the fall of 84, she accepted a full-time job in the English department at Santa Rosa Junior College and moved to Northern California. Jean has three grown children, a beloved stepdaughter, and four granddaughters. She and her husband lived in the Northern California forest, also known as Healdsburg, where her pastimes include beekeeping and reading poetry at a local memory care facility. She is always at work on another book. Jean, I want to welcome you back to Word by Word. Thanks, Gil. It's wonderful to be back. Now, what we're going to do for our listeners who aren't don't know about Into the Forest is we'll, we'll let you kind of give a overview, a um, little bit about the writing process and how it uh, it took a while to get to print and to find an audience. So, start there. So a long, long time ago at this <laughs> point, <laughs> I um, I had um, two little little baby girls at home, and I just finished a nonfiction book, um, had a lot of fun writing it. It's called The Life Within Celebration of a Pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And But I had two small children, and I thought, well, I, I'm not going to be writing a book because it's hard to get very far with a book in a nap time, which is what I had, you know, the time <laughs> I had for writing. And um, But my family um, and I had just moved out into the forest west of Healdsburg. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got the idea for this story that was very, very intriguing to me. I knew how I thought I wanted it to end. And um, so I thought it would be a piece of cake to write, and I might be able to write it in you know six months' worth of nap times. Sure. Fortunately, I didn't realize that it was going to take you know at least five years and, and an infinite number of drafts because I knew how I wanted the book to end, but I didn't really know who the characters were, why they were in the situation they were in, or what was the most interesting parts to me of the sort of challenges they were up against. Um, So I wrote and wrote and wrote and um, ended up with a story about two young women, uh, very young teenagers, um, in living with their parents in the remote um, 
woods of Northern California at a time in the very near future, sort of ideally three years three in years advance from now, of from whenever, whenever now is, whenever you pick up the book. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Whenever a reader picks it up. So I, I want that kind of haunting sense of it, it you know, this might happen soon. Um, and it's a time when civilization has slowly sort of um, become unreliable. And so all the infrastructure, all the things that we just think are sort of birthrights have, have kind of disappeared with a whimper, not a bang. And finally, to the point where finally these two young women are by themselves – in the home that they've grown up with. And mm. the novel is about what they do next, the choices they make, and um, and how they manage to come to terms with that situation. Well, the interesting thing is about how you don't specify what happened. There's a chapter where you go over a series of events. There was an epidemic, uh, influenza kind of thing. There was a war. There was... Uh, uh, some disruption. There were some elections on the horizon, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the only thing that the the family noticed is that the electricity went off, and then the telephone went off, which never goes off, right? Theoretically, I mean, you're out in the country; you don't lose that or the landline at oh, that time. Oh yeah, we oh, do. You do. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> so basically, all the things you were aware of it out in the country, and they only had a limited amount of supplies. They had to travel in to go to the post office and the small grocery country store kind of place, which was still quite a far piece from their place. And then um, even that closed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both mm-hmm. of those. So they're off on their own. Mm-hmm. And a tragedy befalls them with the father, and they are really on their own, mm-hmm. just the two ladies. Mm-hmm. So – you, it's interesting you said that you saw the end before you began to get there in, in all those five to six years of writing. So what end did you see? Oh, but I can't say that. Well, right? that's – how can you say <laughs> somebody, it in such a way? Is it the end that's in the, bo- the, the, end that's like in the book? Let's yeah, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Is it still it is. the same end? It okay. is. And the the big challenge was earning that ending mm-hmm. because it I, – I, I, for um, – Many readers, I'm very happy to say, say that it's unexpected. They did not expect that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of those readers say that it was an ending that made good sense given the story and that, you know, they were – it was a satisfying ending for them. There's some small um, number of readers who want to quibble with that ending and more power to them because that's what makes – reading a pleasure, right? That right. We, that we all come at it in a different way. But one of my big challenges with that book was writing it in such a way so that at least a majority, you know, 90% of readers would go all the way to the end and 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 end the book happily where I ended it. So that was one of the things that took so long. When you were creating these characters, because you've got an ending for them, but you don't, you didn't see the beginning for them. So you knew they were going to be, what, senior in high school, 17, 18-year-old, mm-hmm. I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a dancer. Uh, music is very, very important to her. Mm-hmm. One is a wannabe doctor, as I recall. And um, instances happen where she has to kind of be the, the medic, if mm-hmm. you will. And uh, she realizes that this forest that surrounds her is filled with medicinal plants and herbs and other things, and that she knows nothing about them. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. how do we how do we find out if we're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no internet, no Google? How do you, I know? <laughs> <laughs> and no and, WebMD, right? And no elders. Then no elders. And no elders. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's you know that's what we've relied on for generations mm-hmm. to teach us what we need to know to survive, and we've we've sort of severed. I mean, books would be our elders or internet, um, and those resources are not available. So. They, they have big challenges, those two young women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've seen Captain Fantastic. No, I haven't. You should sometime. Yeah. I'm, do I'm, the comparisons yeah. because there's a man who's living in the woods and specifically teaching his six children how to survive and all about, you know, what, what the mugwort will do mm-hmm. <laughs> if you need to know that, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it's an interesting contrast. But it, it, from what little I know about that film, though um, – it's not a terribly happy story, is it? I mean, what's it? What in, one thing that interests me a lot is what what it what is the right so thing for us to do? So is Into the Forest a terribly happy story? No, I think it's a very hopeful story. Right. Okay. But what's so interesting to me is, you know, how what what is it our children need? How do we know really what our children need? I think that's a fascinating question. Well, I think it depends on where they live, don't yeah, you? Yeah, survival, yeah. essentially. Yeah. yeah what, well, how yeah. can you make it wherever you are? And sort of what's coming next, which yeah. we don't know. No. So, yeah. Oh, well. Interesting. So, is there something from Into the Forest you'd like to read and share with us? Um, I'd be happy to. You've got a copy. I've got a copy. Yeah. So you can pick. I'm sure you've got pieces you really like. Um, this describes... Um, you were talking about how they don't really know right. what caused the situation they're in. And um, I think that's the way it's going to be. I was in um, East, I was living in eastern Washington when Mount St. Helens mm. volcano erupted. And um, in the middle of the day, things turned utterly black. Mm-hmm. I was in college and so I thought this was a good excuse to go to the bar. I thought that was cool. And um and but Well that's obvious. That's been an answer for a millennium, yeah, right? right. Yes. <laughs> uh and the ash started falling down from this you know, this utterly black sky and we started getting a little bit more somber, if not sober, and you know, a little bit kind so of. So, did you feel or hear the the explosion? No, we were three hundred miles away. Oh. so all we knew was this huge cl- ash cloud of ash right. came across right. and made made the sky entirely black, and the ash started settling down, and. We still had, you know, we didn't have internet then, but we still had radio and TV and the phones were working and we were utterly cut. Nobody knew what was going on. It was just rumors flying. And um, that was really interesting. That's a really interesting moment. It was a sort of the same moment that I experienced being up in Healdsburg during the, you know, the big Loma Prieta earthquake. 89. When we nobody knew no. what was going on no. or who was in trouble or how extensive the damage was and of course we you know got it all sorted out and the infrastructure came back but well the interesting with that is that the cable went out so people didn't have tv mm-hmm. i happened to have i didn't use half cable we didn't watch except for the you could get 
KRCB <laughs> and a few <laughs> other local channels, yeah. right? But I put an antenna up for the day because I wanted to see the ball game. Uh, and then we saw pictures of supposedly my son walking and his friends walking around the what they call the football field at Santa UC Santa Cruz. And there is no football at UC Santa Cruz because they don't right, have a football team. Right. But at least they said that people were safe except unless they were in the engineering building, which was, quote, melting down. So, you know, I'm not sure information is necessarily better. No. Because uh-uh. if all these rumors start, it's just like the thing, remember the, the explosion, the gas explosion in, mm-hmm. in San Bruno and right. all the, oh, this airplane crashed kind of stuff. Well, mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of a reminder that that the knowledge that we rely on isn't maybe as reliable as we. It's like not to all think. Walter Cronkite anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. So let's a hear bit. a little bit. So this is written from the point of view of Nell, who's this seventeen-year-old young woman, and she's kind of keeping a journal to try to sort of keep mm-hmm. track of what's going. Which is on. a convenient literary device. Right. <laughs> But chosen for good reasons, I might add. I I wanted um, I wanted it to be first person, but I wanted there to be a lot in the book that she didn't know about. So she she couldn't be thinking back from some further time mm-hmm. on an experience mm-hmm. that it she had to be immediate. Had. It had to have that sense of immediacy. Right. So that was the best I came up with. Last winter, when the electricity first began going off, it was so occasional and brief we didn't pay much attention. They're probably working on the lines, we'd say, or the rains must have brought a tree down. They'll have the power back soon. And soon enough, the lights would blink on, the washing machine would resume its hum and churn in the utility room, the vacuum cleaner would roar back to life, and a second later we would be taking electricity for granted once again. For a long time, the power quit only for a few minutes every day or so, just enough to be an irritation. The microwave would stop dead. The clothes would flop wetly to the bottom of the dryer. Dinner would cool half-baked in the oven. If one of us was taking a shower, the water would dribble to a gravity-fed trickle without the electric pump to give it pressure. If I was working at my computer, the screen would go blank and the machine would moan as it crashed. If Eva was practicing at home, the CD she had been dancing to would stop, and she would stumble out of her studio, looking as though she had just been slapped awake. If it was night and her father was home from work, the sudden lack of light would sometimes propel him out of the grief in which he had lost himself, and he would entertain us by inventing absurd curses while we stomped and fussed in the darkness. God whack a donut, he'd yell, or turds grow roses, as he bumped into corners of tables and knocked things off counters, looking for the flashlight, the candles, matches. After ten or fifteen minutes, when the lights would flick back on, Eva and I would be almost disappointed, because we knew all too soon his manic energy would drain away and he would once again slump back into despair. That's a good stop. Yeah, good oh, enough. That's right. Yeah. So that's before it really clipped off. Yeah. 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 Little inklings. That, that yeah. kind of zone. No that, more coal-powered electricity. Right. Or, <laughs> or whatever happened. Or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it's 
a little bit playing with that way that we just adapt. We get used to things, you know, with the freeways get more and more crowded and we complain. Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do? You right. know, you just plan more time into your trip. They say that, you know, the water from the taps isn't very good for you. And so that's kind of dumb. But you buy bottled water, you know, for better <laughs> and way, way worse. And and so we just adapt. We come up with workarounds. What are you going to do? And um, so I th one thing it's trying to do is just kind of explain why when the power goes off for good, um, they don't really even realize it's off for good. It's, mm -hmm. They're waiting for it well, to come back. Well, the, the dancer does because she's doesn't. She has some battery backup, but not for long. Not well. She yeah. She's got she's got some gas she wants to use to hear some music right. because you know she's for the generator. Imagine trying to be a serious dancer mm -hmm. with no music, right? And so she's she's really suffering um, as the power goes off, right? Yeah. Now we're going to shift quickly over to the movie. Yeah. The reason is is that the I I had only seen the credits. I haven't seen the whole film, and I mean you know the preview, and as I, it opens up with this very modernistic house with lots of glass. And you can see the inhabitants through the windows from you know an outside perspective, and the one the young the the seventeen year old sitting at her computer, and it's got a screen, you know, this huge array. I mean, I don't know, size of a door, and uh, all of a sudden it's gone. It's all dark, and I wondered if that house had anything to do with the house you pictured when you were writing. No, uh, uh No. Not at all. Not uh -uh. at all. Because no. I didn't picture it when I was reading. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um I mean I've I've seen the movie just once. I had I had really very, very little, next to nothing to do with, with its creation. And I've seen the movie just once. And it's fa I mean it was fascinating to me because it's like seeing the inside of my brain through somebody else's eyes. Right. right. And um so there were all sorts of things. Some have Not been brought up to date things. because Some Technology has changed, yes. Right, yeah, and I think I think um, Patricia Razima was wanting to create a technology that also seems sort of three years in the future. So it's not exactly the devices and the you know the computers we're used to now, but it might be something sort of coming no robots up. yet, though. right? And I and I think that that house, um, and I think one thing that really interested her about the story was sort of the privilege of these two young women. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're you know, growing up in this kind of isolated home, but um, they're very privileged. And they're, they're, they're spoiled, you know, their parents love them and give them lots and lots of what, what they need and want. And they've made this assumption about the lives they're going to lead and, um, you know, that those lives are only constrained by how, how far – how much they want to work, they can go as far as as they possibly want, which is, you know, that's a very privileged kind of understanding of the world. And I think that really interested Patricia. And I think the house was kind of one way to um, express that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's being, her, being I mean, it's her guy, story yeah. too. You know, it's her story now. It, it said it's a Scandinavian movie. kind of feeling to it. Yeah. You know, there, that beautiful place in the middle of this primeval Setting, yeah, meant that there had to be a lot of, you know, 
work to get it there. And you know that the people who were living in the house didn't do the work. Mm-hmm. So there's that you know tacit understanding. Yes, this connections, these cables, these wires, these you know pipes that lead from outside. Somebody else is responsible for all those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So they're in the forest, but they're they're really not in the forest. I mean, right. they're they're profoundly connected to this to this civilization. So other reactions to the film that you can talk about that you don't mind sharing um, is the casting right. You know, I think um, I think the, I think the casting is good. I, you were mentioning before the show. I mean, so it, these are teenage women, and they're right. they're being acted by women in their you know mid to late twenties. Which um, um, today, by the way, while we're recording this, is Evan Rachel Wood's birthday. She's going to be twenty seven. Oh, today, happy so, birthday yes. to Evan! So yeah. that that gives you an idea of she's not. Eighteen, right? She's right. a dec- She's got a decade on the <clears throat> character she was playing, or almost. Um, I think they pulled it off. I mean, I think it's a bit of a stretch. I'm glad they they um, uh, filmed it, you know, two years ago and not today. But um, other than their age, I think I think the acting is one of the things I really, really admire about the movie. I think they're both uh, really. I think they gave really passionate performances. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, it's obviously a very personal movie because in addition to, you know, um, the actress being the producer, we also have the director being the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. So she took your book, said, well, this is the most cinematic parts and we're going to pull that out. And this is going to catch the audience's attention, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to make this a simple question. Does the film end where you wanted it to be that you saw originally? Yeah, it pretty much it pretty much ends there. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't. Um, it didn't. It changed a little bit along the way, you know. Um, I mean, it's a film. It's it's right. it's its own beast. Right. Um, but um, I I had the feeling watching the film and then the little bit of conversation I had with Patricia and Evan and Ellen that um, they really got the story. That I was trying to tell, and then they took it and and owned it. You know, they made it their own in the movie. Wonderful. Well, let's look at uh, your new book. It's a good yeah, time to thank do that. You. Um, it is called Still Time. Tell me about the title. Does it is it a is it a statement, as in there is still time, or is it in a description, as in the still time, or what? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and also, can we make time stand still? still. Ah. And yes, is there still time for things to happen? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, ho- hopefully it's it's got this little bundle of um, uh, connotations. Um, it's a story very unlike Into the Forest. Um, it's about a Shakespeare scholar who um, – an aging Shakespeare scholar and um, he's developing Alzheimer's and he's still trying to work. He's still – he still loves the plays. They're still alive for him and deeply meaningful mm-hmm. and um, – Have been since junior high. Have been since junior high since he – well, yeah. Yeah. And First he one. Right. memorized – 
you know, in, in college, he went off to UC Davis and, and decided during the summer as he's working in a gas station, he wants to memorize Romeo and Juliet because he thinks it's so beautiful. Um, and it's not your typical, what do they call them, grease monkey? Kind no, of yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a good summer job for, for a kid um, back then. And, you know, people who've had a chance to hang out with people with dementia have often observed that some of the things that we remember longest are either early experiences or things that we've learned by heart. Mm -hmm. And so a thing that really interested me in writing this book was if Shakespeare is what John knows, how is that going to serve him? Um, you know, in his final years, as as his as his memories and his kind of grip on, you know, what we all think is kind of the real world, begin to fracture and fade, and he's still got Shakespeare. He does, and one of the reasons that he still does is because <clears throat> the part of the brain that's not affected by Alzheimer's is the one that remembers songs and lyrics. Uh, so you've got the sonnet aspect of Shakespearean phrasing. Yeah, and uh, as such, I realized as I was reading it, there that's perfect. I, I assumed you'd done some research about it, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, that's one of the th why it's so easily recalled for him, or at least not as more difficult as other things are to be recalled. Mm -hmm. And it's they're prompted, mm -hmm. you know, the the lines. There'll be a, there'll be two words together, and he'll immediately have a a quote to to use for that specific situation. Right, lots of triggers and this yes. kind of associative, yes. um, uh, this kind of associative situation, so that one um, one thing that he remembers or triggers something else, and mm -hmm. it starts putting the plays together and those stories together in right. kind of new, rich ways. So, is this uh, father based on anyone you know? No, you don't have a Shakespearean scholar. You you reference them at the end of your. Your book, all of your people who you know who quote Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Well, my father actually was a um, a college. He was an English professor, right? Um, but he, did, he Shakespeare wasn't his. He, he was nothing like John. Ah. And um, Shakespeare, he 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 did his dissertation on Erasmus, ah. and um, <laughs> was prof deeply dedicated to teaching um, undergraduates um, writing. And um, so, and he was nothing like he was nothing like John. But I guess I did grow up in an academic family, mm -hmm. and I did grow up um, around Shakespeare in a way that made Shakespeare um, uh, just sort of a good friend, you know. And so, when I got the idea for this book, I was no scholar, but I was certainly a fan. Um, so. I've read somewhere that you have to understand and like Shakespeare to enjoy the book. I didn't find that necessarily to be true, because I'm not a, you know, immersed in him. But I, it, it, I thought the references were quite good and sounded like I should run up to Oregon, you know, to Ashland and see a few more plays. Go see a few plays. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So I, I mean, I had sort of my ambition was to write for two audiences at the same time, mm -hmm. and one is for people who know much more about Shakespeare than I do. So, you know, the, the real scholars. Right. And I couldn't be more proud that David Crystal, who's, um, a, a, 
you know, a very, very well-known um, linguist and Shakespeare scholar. He's, he's British. Um, gave a wonderful endorsement for this book before it came out. He said this book is – Shakespeare would be proud of it. <laughs> so I – you know, I well, mean, there's I, something I could Shakespearean just, in the – I could glow In the father-daughter relationship certainly. Oh, very much. Yes. I mean very much. And and so that was one one audience. And then the other audience was – Frankly, people who don't know much about Shakespeare or or even, you know, have some Shakespeare allergy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that phrase. That's well, good. Well, you yes. know, I mean, there are people who sure. – and, and for all kinds of good reasons, I, I think. Um, I think often our relationship to Shakespeare really depends on how we were introduced to the plays. And um, if we were introduced to the plays, you know, as I was, as just a kid, and it was just part of the atmosphere that, you know, you'd have pizza and, you know, go to a play or something, um, or by some really enthusiastic teacher, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're predisposed to like Shakespeare, or at least not be afraid. Right. And um, but then other people have had you know less happy experiences with teachers and, and being force fed it in school. Force fed, yeah. march through it. Where's the hidden meanings? You know the vocabulary, iambic pentameter. Before you know what the or they're know, thrown to see Baz Luhrmann's interpretation of Romeo and Juliet and don't have the slightest idea what they're doing in well, those cars. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so I mean I was hoping that I would write a book that I could write a book that um, that wouldn't put off that audience and might even make people who, you know, were skeptical of Shakespeare be a little bit more interested. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. Today's guest is Gene Hagelin, the author of the best-selling novel of a near future, Into the Forest, and soon to be released, Still Time, a novel about Shakespeare scholar with Alzheimer's. Be sure to mark your calendars. The movie version of Into the Forest opens at Sebastopol's Rialto Cinemas this Friday, September 16th, and the book launch for Still Time begins at 7 p.m. Friday, October 7th, at the Occidental Center for the Arts. Gene Hecklin will be talking about and reading from Still Time during the next half hour, so be sure to stay tuned to KRCB-FM. Okay, so I was going to say, you were t- I mentioned that it's a story of a father and a daughter, and I read somewhere that you are, you are I don't know if this is intentional, but the fathers in all of your books are dramatically different. Do you want to comment about that and why that happened? What, what, do you what I'm just saying is that there's fathers in your books, yeah. but they're all different fathers. They're all very different. Yeah. That, you said that, so I'm just yeah. quoting you yeah, back from yeah. something that yeah. was written in some newspaper. So. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, okay. Actually, what, I think what I meant was um, <laughs> it was a kind of goofy thing my agent had said once. She said, it's like all your books have different fathers. Uh-huh. And the idea being that you know, if, if, if I'm donating half the genetic material to my book, then there's a donation you know, from, from the father, right? And so the book is the offspring. I, so it was, it was very metaphorical. But the idea was that the books are so different. I mean, right. so my first novel is this post-apocalyptic. So a literary father. Right. Okay. And then my second novel is about, you know, two two mothers, contemporary two mothers in very different circumstances. And this novel is about a Shakespearean scholar with Alzheimer's. And my agent was just saying, um, uh, you know, they're all so different. It's like they had different fathers. Um, the fathers in the books 
are going to be different because the books are so different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there are fathers in all of them. And um, John is probably the most flawed father. I mean, the question, the question. Flawed in what sense? That the t- well, the question that the title poses, one way that the title can be read is, is there still time for him to reconcile with this daughter? So he's he's the father of one child, right. um, Miranda, right. which um, and he w- w- he named her Miranda because of the Miranda and you know William Shakespeare's The Tempest, mm-hmm. and um, and she insists on me calling it Randy, which Randy. He ra- rails against, which just drives him crazy. Yeah, and then towards the end of the book, she calls herself Ran. She she changes. Well, that's her. what her boyfriend and yeah, yeah calls her. Um, but. Uh, they when she was a teenager they had one of those those dreadful misunderstandings where they're both at fault and neither of them is to blame and they haven't spoken for 10 years and during that 10 years he's developed um dementia yeah it was also exacerbated by the new wife the yeah stepmother yeah well the what's it, what was exacerbated the 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 disillusion, the dis, you know, the separating off of each other was kind of – she didn't really want the daughter around. Not the final, the final wife. He's been through a bunch of wives. So no, this is the wife in London I'm talking right, about. Right, the wife in London, yes. Yeah, she did not help. No. And, and so um, – London is important. London is, is this kind of pivotal moment in both of their lives mm-hmm. for different reasons, this trip that they take to London. He's been invited – to give the keynote speech at a at a Shakespeare conference, and he brings his daughter, his teenage daughter, and his new young wife along, and um, they have a dreadful misunderstanding. Yeah, the new young young wife insists that there be a separate bedroom for the teenage daughter. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which you know, I mean, yeah. I can understand that. You, yeah, yeah, you can understand, but but it it it. She she fails them in many many other ways and and he's flawed because he doesn't fight as he should have I think as a father should mm-hmm, have at mm-hmm. that point and um and then life goes on and he he tries he makes some attempts to reconnect with Miranda and she um you know for for good and bad bad reasons um doesn't pick up on right. those and but she's a teenager you know um he should have tried harder. Now, so it's now ten years later, and ten they, years we later. get each person's recollections, his more in bits and pieces, right? Of what happened that during those times and since, right? Because there had been one attempt at, at reconnection in the middle, which did not go well, right? And so now the question is: Is there still time mm-hmm. for them to reconcile? And and also, um, what would they gain by that? You know what? What did, what? What would that mean for both of them? And I think, I think one, you know, one sort of interesting question is: John is deep enough into dementia so that each moment, each moment has its own really um, uh, sort of compelling life, but the moments aren't necessarily connected. So if he reconciles with her in one moment. Does that mean they're reconciled? Or does he remember it the next moment? Exactly. And if he doesn't remember it, what does that mean? Does that negate that it happened? I mean, all of those kinds of questions about about time and cognition are kind of interesting in the background. But then for me in the foreground, what, what 
you know, is really compelling is can these two people that I care about a great deal find a way to um, – Find time. Find time. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, on a metaphysical level, it's a it, it time is not as linear as we want it to be. Certainly in this book. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things, one of the real, and I'm reading this book from you know the perspective of you know seventy plus man who has way too many colleagues who are grappling with dementia, mm-hmm. and um. What you've done is show, I guess I would call a fairly real reality of what it's like to be in one of those places. In fact, I'd like to – we open up the book with you know him at home with his fourth wife, mm-hmm. Sally. And she's talking about maybe we should investigate. You know, We might want to look. It might be better for everyone if kind of thing. And then on page um, – let's see what page is it? Page 29 – yeah, because most of the book is told from John's point of view. So we're inside his rich, I'd like to think, and and engaging but um, fragmented mind. Mm-hmm. And um, so so that that was a imagine you know a leap of imagination, um, based on you know some experience with 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 beloved friends and family members who've struggled with dementia. Uh, I also spent, oh, eight years or so reading poetry at a memory care facility once a week. I'd go in and read poems. Mm-hmm. And um, so just got to hang out with people and got and got, got to have a sense of um, what – what their lives were like and what their minds were like. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, as always, you know, I try to prime my imagination with a lot of experience and research. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for? I'm looking for time? when he's in the the first day that he's at the the. Uh, oh, at the very the, beginning. Of the, yeah. I think I can find. Can you that. find Should that? I try that? All right. You okay. try to find it. Wait. Should I start right there? Start right there. Okay. I don't know where to go. A voice announces at his back. It is a woman's voice, rough with age. Like one of the abused queens in King John or Richard III, it hints at hidden sorrows. Despite the pang in his bad hip, John twists around in his chair to watch as the speaker shuffles into the room through the wide doorway that opens onto a bland, bright hall. Is this where we are? She demands. Her blouse sags from her jutting shoulders. Her pant legs flap like sacks around her scrawny thighs. Be gone, John growls, avaunt. Ignoring him as if he were mere furniture, she circles the room until her attention is snagged by a pair of photographs that sit atop the dresser. What are these doing here? We don't even know these people, she complains snatching up the nearest picture and frowning at the image it contains. As if to prove her point, she holds the photo out toward John, tilting it to reveal a school portrait of a child, a girl of eight or ten, her pigtails askew, her gap-toothed grin at odds with the pinch of worry in her brown eyes. 
Like an old bruise or a dimming sunset, the photograph's colors have begun to fade, but even so, the sight of that grinning girl evokes in John a deep and complicated ache, provokes a yearning he can't quite locate or explain. So, what I wanted to show in, the, in that section, and what obviously you wanted to show in that section, is the arbitrariness of this the setting that they're in. They, he's in his, what he calls it, ends up calling his cell. He can look out and see a stone wall and there's bright blue cerulean sky above it. Mm-hmm. But that's it. The bird goes by, plane goes by, bow, excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, he, he doesn't feel that it's his place. That chair over there is familiar. Mm-hmm. That's the one from the study that, you know, they've moved several times, but Nothing else. There's mm-hmm. Photographs are people he doesn't know, which is very telling because that comes and goes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he knows who they are and mm-hmm. other times he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then his daughter appears one day and she's definitely not what he remembers because the one he remembers is about seven years old. Mm-hmm. And this one's what, 20-something, 20 mm-hmm. 27. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you were in – are you in working with your mother still? My mother um, – yeah, my mother is, is 97 and a half right. and, and deeply demented at this point. And I visit her every day and mm-hmm. we look at the birds. Look at the birds. Fly back. Talk about what's happening this moment. This moment. It's this is be the in moment this we moment. get. Yeah. yeah. How happy we are to be together in this moment. The yeah. caregivers who come in, the professionals who come in who have name tags on their – you know, they're sort of starched outfits, uh, nylon outfits, whatever they're wearing. And um, every time she comes in the room, he forgets and has to ask who she is. <laughs> Same person, right? Mm-hmm. Except when he calls her the one time, it's night and a different person comes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Must be very, very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine how disconcerting that would be on top of everything else. Yeah. Even though the caregivers, you know, he's lucky. He's got caring caregivers. Mm-hmm. He's got he's got people. I mean, I think those people are saints. Right. And um and they, you know, they 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 give him loving care. Mhm. Which is interesting. We get an inside uh insider's look at what's going on because you have a character that you developed, I assume because you needed somebody. The one who looks behind the curtain. Mhm. And it's the the chef, the cook, who wears you know a, a, a hairnet and yeah. comes out to smoke his cigarettes smoke and cigarette. and finds finds the daughter out there smoking her cigarettes mm-hmm. and so they have a conversation and he says, "Well, this one's not so bad. It's actually pretty good compared to some others I've worked with." Mm-hmm. So she's supposed to feel you know that's making her feel better, but I don't think she really does at first. No, I mean it's it's it, you know to see your father in an institution, even if even if you're told that it's a pretty good institution, is still mm-hmm. you know painful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, which part of the con the um, the meetings between the daughter and the father, which is the one is most important? The first one. Well, you know, so Miranda. Has had a hard time, right? And um, she's she's struggled a lot, and she's finally managed to sort of create a path for herself. 
she's got she's got a a really um caring partner and she's found um a kind of vocation that she's mm-hmm. really excited about she wants to become a um video game um uh designer designer right. and she is really and this is it's a man's world and she wants to break into it um this is set in about 2003 mm-hmm. it's, it hasn't changed a great deal um but she's really excited about this and she wants to go to school she wants to go to college she's a high school dropout she's decided that she wants to get the math and the computer programming that even you know the people on the artistic um teams of a of a um, game development um, group are going to have to need. She's got. She's she's so excited about doing this, right. and you can imagine what John thinks about. Well, let's talk here what John thinks <laughs> okay. about what she's doing. Start with Dad there. Dad, the voice is timid, tremulous, strangely familiar. John jerks alert with a snort, his speculations scattering like startled birds. But instead of twisting around to glare at his intruder, he keeps his gaze fixed on the scrap of world outside his window, studies the usurping ivy and the peering daffodils in hope that this interloper will see how busy he is and let him be. Can I come in? The voice persists. He's heard that voice before, or at least he thinks he has, although he cannot at this moment pair it with a name or face. Even so, he feels an unexpected surge of delight to hear it now, though his pleasure is followed instantly by a tug of caution. May, he suggests warily. (laughs) Is that okay? Reluctantly, wincing at the torment in his hip, John turns in his chair to see a woman standing in the doorway. She is young, Twenty-five, maybe, or twenty-seven, a slender woman, all juts and knobs, her brown hair tousled to appear rakish, though at the moment she only seems unkempt, her wafting, her wafting skirt and sleeveless shirt, evidence of the spring weather, but perhaps suggestive, too, of something unfixed about her. She looks eager and worried, breathless in some existential way as she takes a step into the room, reaches out a hand. A second later, she steps back to the threshold, retracting her hand to press it against her heart. Daddy, she whispers, her voice catching on itself. Clearing her throat, she repeats more firmly, Dad? Mm Mm-hmm. And then she goes on and says, it's Randy. And he says, Randy, no, no, that's not your name. You're Miranda. Right. Right? She says, I'm Randy. And he says, I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking that it's a verb. Right. Right. Miranda, she amends, your daughter, Miranda. Miranda, his mind echoes, admired Miranda and worth what's dearest to the world and my daughter who art ignorant of what thou art. Right. And she is ignorant of what thou art, what mm-hmm. he is, certainly, what he has now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, what he is in 10 minutes may be different. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the thing that still time does so well. Mm-hmm. So I, kudos to you for, for getting it right, I guess right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Because um, you can feel the, the – it's not exactly the pain. It's the 
uncertain emptiness of what it must feel to not be able to pull something out of that you know is in there somewhere in that file cabinet. Mm-hmm. You just have to remember the right sequence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've all done that, you know, that, that name of the character from a movie or a book or, or someone's that person who you meet in the street. Who is that? You ask your, you know, your spouse as you go, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, yeah, that's oh, who yeah. that is. Yeah. 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 So did you have an idea of what memory is like when you were writing this, that, uh, the, how the brain is organized? Did you have a, a thought process? Um, you know, that part was fairly intuitive. I mean, I did gobs and gobs of research for mm-hmm. this book. Well, that's what I um, assumed, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but that part was sort of fairly intuitive. I think based on a lot of, of sort of my observation of, you know, other people, um, other people's experience with dementia and also probably my own observation of exactly what you're describing there, that that feeling that I know, I know it. It's, you know, on the tip of my mind's tongue, but, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of groping that I think we all do. And mm-hmm. you turn up the volume on that and um, – you do some coping mechanisms at first. You you know, oh, you know, we all forget kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Jokes yeah. and quotes yeah. come to mind. And so he used that obviously probably for quite a while mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what do you want your readers of Still Time how are they going to share this with their friends and neighbors? Are they going to run around the block and say, you've got to read this? Or is this a more be circumspect? Do you, do you don't run in? I would think that the tendency might be to run in with somebody you hear has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And here's a book for you to read. Yeah. Uh, so is it? Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I – I would I would love for readers to run out to their friends and neighbors and say you've got to read this book. Right. And and that's definitely been a Okay, thing I'm going to tell happened. my friends and neighbors on the radio you've got to read this book. Yeah, please. Thank okay. you. Um and and I would also say that many that that I've heard from people who said I just can't read it right now. You know, I've got I've got a mother who's got dementia and mm-hmm. you know, I can't read it right now and I totally respect that. I've also heard from people who've said that it's been a real comfort for them. Hmm. Um, and, um, that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a realistic sort of accurate portrayal, but, and, and dementia, you know, is a, is a sad, frustrating disease, but I think it's also, I'd like to think this, this book is a reminder that there is still time, you know, that, that we're, as long as we're still alive, um, life is happening. Mm-hmm. I know what, uh, when I got the idea for this book, my mother was fine. Mm-hmm. And I – so I wrote this book. Um, She'd not been diagnosed. No. She's not showing any symptoms. No. I mean she – you know, she was in her late 80s. Right. So, but she well, was – a young person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she – you know, she was really doing just fine. And, and so by the time the book came out – she she had you know she had a lot of dementia and i don't know if i would have had the courage to start writing it if um if she was struggling with her own dementia when i started but i know that having written it was a huge help and comfort for me too mm-hmm. that sort of 
visiting that world in that way. And, I mean, she's a very, very different person than John, and our relationship is utterly different. Um, and yet, I think, it, for me, it was a real helpful reminder of, you know, you've got those moments, and there is still time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The moments of lucidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or... Or not. Or not. You know? That's true. Well, the moments where you're holding hands see, and lo- watching the birds. Yeah, that's the thing is if you're going and you're going, you, you go and visit quite regularly, but other people who have to travel distances, this mm-hmm. young woman's coming up from Santa Cruz, for instance, it's a, it takes time and energy yeah. and, you know, to get it coordinated to do it. Yeah. So you don't just drop in, although they say you can at any time. Right. Uh, which is nice. That's You want to find a, a nursing home that want, does that. Mm-hmm. That's a very good thing to do, and you should go at different times just to see how mm-hmm. the staff are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the other thing. This is this has all the little handbook notes into it about the information about you know the seven year timeline that's, that that mm-hmm. most people agree on now. Mm-hmm. The difference between dementia and senility and and other things that you've included in the book, as you know, as people explain things, as though putting labels on things and timelines on things makes it somehow other fit in the basket easier, and you can tote it around. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're face to face with the the one you love, and they're not who you remember, yeah, I and mean, they don't those, remember you. Those facts can be helpful in the abstract, but in the moment, they're probably not very meaningful. Right? Yeah. Well, I thank you for the book. Still, time it's a it's quite a um, I think a very insightful and well done. So, what's next for Jean Hagland? You always said you said at the beginning that you're working on writing all the time. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have nap times to no, limit you, no nap times, no. <laughs> unless it's your own. <laughs> That's another story. Um, I'm re- I'm working on another novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, different time always and place work- entirely. Well, <sighs> um. I guess I'll go public with this. Interestingly enough, it's um, it's revisiting the characters from Into the Forest. Ah, um, uh, about the fif- main protagonist, fifteen or yeah, the the characters who who are there at the end of the book, and uh-huh. we won't give that won't away give that too away. much. No. Um, and and just sort of checking in on them about fifteen years later. Checking in, yeah, hmm. seeing I'll what they're up to. Think of what to. that would be like. Seeing Where is what, what time and place? To. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, that is – You're still teaching? I don't teaching? know. I would hardly yeah. think of it as a sequel. I mean it's, 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 it's sort of such a different book and very challenging in its own ways. So wish well, me What's luck. the challenge part to it right now? Just seeing the 15 years into the future or is that easy? Yeah, no, seeing that and kind of, I mean, it's a lot of world building, imagining. Yeah, yeah it's, you're um, kind of like the, the green world. That, yeah, uh, yeah. That the young woman develops in still time when she gets her game idea. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. She. So she. She. She um, uses Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a wonderful time because um, the more I studied video games, the more I realized that they're very similar. What, what's happening with video games right now is very similar, I think, to what was going on with theater in um, Elizabethan England. So there's this kind of brand new collaborative storytelling mm-hmm. um, experience that lots lots of sort of um, 
the older generation or Puritans looked down on. You right. know, there's the same when Elizabethan theater began. It was it was just filled with sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, does this sound familiar? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like video games. Right. And um, so that was that was. Really and it was aimed at a young audience. And it was aimed at a. At a young audience. Not yeah. the old burgers or whatever they were stayed. called. The state mm-hmm. parents, no. Though Queen Elizabeth liked the Yes, well, so she, that was, she thank could goodness. go and just walk in any time she wanted to. <laughs> yeah. see, so she had the prerogative to do that. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you as – a, as a teacher of writing, is there anything you would want to share with the wannabe write, novelists out there about specif- specify it to be novelists? Wannabe novelists. Um <laughs> Don't stop. It's going to take longer than you think. You can do it. <laughs> Read like crazy. Find yourself some allies. And um, just don't stop. Don't give up. Don't give you up. You can do it. Right up a storm. Okay. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guest has been Jean Hagelin, the author of the best-selling novel of a near future, Into the Forest, and the soon-to-be-released Still Time, a novel about a Shakespearean scholar with Alzheimer's and his daughter and his wife. Be sure to mark your calendars. The movie version of Into the Forest starring Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood opens at Spastopol's Rialto Cinemas this Friday, September 16th, and the book launch for Still Time begins at 7 p.m. Friday, October 7th, at the Occidental Center for the Arts. You can find out more online. Our studio engineer for today's broadcast is Anthony Garcia. Our radio program manager is Sean Knight. Our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for the next Word by Word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday, October 9th. Until then, here's a quote from Gene Hegland. This body is yours. No one can ever take it from you. If only you accept yourself, claim it again, your arms, your spine, your ribs, the small of your back. It's all yours. All this bounty, all this beauty, all this strength and grace is yours. This garden is yours. Take it back. Take it back.